Well, I, I admit, as each week as I um, print your handout, I just hate that I don't have a better visual for you. I, I wish I could put something up, and, but I just don't have that. So you're reduced to having typewritten notes. Um, so you'll have to use your imagination. But then I think about Socrates, and Socrates just walked around and talked to his students and taught them in a walking school. That's, that was their classroom. They just walked around and talked about things, and that's how he taught his students. No whiteboards, no handouts, just walking and talking. So there's hope for us. All right, um, <clears throat> we left off last week, I think, um, with the uh, Maccabean Revolt. That's where we're going to kind of start tonight. So uh, I don't, how many of you have a Bible that has the apocryphal books in it? Anybody? So those are the intertestamental books between the Old Testament and New Testament, and First and Second Maccabees are, uh, are are two of the books in there, and they give the history in First and Second Maccabees. It gives the history of the Maccabean Revolt. It really is. Uh, there's nothing wrong with those books. I would encourage you to read those books and to read the history, the 400 years of history there. Uh, like you would read any other history book or you'd read any other book, just read it knowing it's not uh, scripture. But that doesn't mean it's not profitable for you to read and study that. And so in, um, in the book of Maccabees, it gives the history of the Maccabean revolt. revolt. And Judas Maccabee is credited with this revolt, but he didn't, he didn't really start it. And he didn't really finish it completely, but he was the one who um, really gets the credit for it, and rightly so. He's the one that ultimately led the Jewish revolt that took back the temple at Jerusalem, and this revolt against Antiochus Epiphanes is called the Maccabean Revolt. Um, so remember... We're still in this period where Alexander's empire had been divided into four parts. And the two parts that influence us most in history are called the Seleucid dynasty and the Ptolemy dynasty. And one, the Seleucids controlled Syria, um, Turkey, they, they controlled all that area. And then the Ptolemies had Egypt. And what's in the middle of Syria and Egypt? Well, there's Israel. And so Israel was kind of in the middle there, and the Ptolemies and the Seleucid dynasties were always fighting on who was going to control Israel. And they fought back and forth. And in 175 B.C., uh, a leader came along by the name of Antiochus IV, or we know him as Antiochus Epiphanes. And his name means God manifest. And he literally thought he was God manifest. And he demanded worship and he did horrible things to the Jews. He outlawed their religious practices. He, he wouldn't let them eat kosher foods. He uh, had the God the likeness of Zeus set up in the temple in Jerusalem. He sacrificed a pig on the altar. That was kind of the last straw. When he sacrificed the pig on the altar in Jerusalem and erected the statue of Zeus, this is when the Maccabees revolted. But actually it was, um, it was a guy by the name of Mattathias. Mattathias started the rebellion. He was the father of he was the father of Judas. The word Maccabee means hammer. So Judas Maccabee is Judas the hammer. 
And um, when the revolt started, Mattathias was the high priest and he would not let a Jew sacrifice um, an unclean offering on the altar as Antiochus had commanded. And he, he stopped the sacrifice and he actually killed the official, um, the government official there. And they ended up, him and his sons ran off and they lived in the woods and lived off the land. Uh, and Judas l gathered uh, support and they came back. And so the rebellion was on. And um, a year after the rebellion started, Mattathias died. And then that's when Judas Maccabeus took command of the rebellion. And then he, he, took the, um, he took the temple back, and it was in um, 164, somewhere 164, 165. They take the temple back, but remember, up until that point, Antiochus has ordered the desecration of the temple. So the temple is, is desecrated, defiled, uh, it has not only pig blood all over it, but it's got pagan idols all over it. And so when Judas Maccabee takes Jerusalem back and takes control of the temple, they can't just reinstate worship because the temple is in complete disarray and disrepair. And so they begin cleaning up the defilement that had been committed against the temple. And when they got ready to relight the menorah, because the menorah was never supposed to stop burning. So in the temple, in the holy place, when you go through the veil into the holy place, there was the menorah, the table of showbread, and then the altar of incense. And right behind the altar of incense was the veil. And behind that veil was the holy of holies where the Ark of the Covenant was supposed to be. And so... The light, the menorah, was supposed to burn perpetually. And so that meant that the priests were to prepare the oil for the burning, sanctify the oil, consecrate the oil for burning in the holy menorah. Well, when they got ready to do this after they cleaned everything up, they could only find enough oil for the menorah to burn for one day. And there was an eight-day process in which they had to consecrate the oil and consecrate everything because of the uncleanliness. So remember, when they're going in and cleaning up the pig blood and all of this, they become unclean. And so they've got to go through the process of becoming clean. They've got to wait out their time. And so there was only enough oil to burn for one day, but miraculously, God made one day's worth of oil burn for eight days. And this is where the, the feast or the celebration of Hanukkah comes from. It's the feast of dedication. What are they dedicating? They were dedicating the temple. They were rededicating the temple of God. It's also called the Feast of Lights, and the symbol of Hanukkah is a menorah because it was the light from the menorah that God supernaturally caused one day's worth of oil to burn eight days. And so this is where Hanukkah comes from. We see Jesus celebrating Hanukkah in John chapter 10, verses 22 and 23. He's in the temple during the Feast of Hanukkah, or the Feast of Dedication, as it's called there. <clears throat> And then in 164 B.C., Antiochus Epiphanes died, and his son became his successor, Antiochus Eupater. And he agreed to peace, and he agreed to allow the resumption of Jewish practices, um, but the war kind of continued on, you know, this struggle between the Seleucids and um, the Jews. <clears throat> and Judas sought help, assistance from a fledgling power in the Mediterranean called Rome. Now, Rome by this time was a very powerful city and they were powerful in their own right. But remember, it was Alexander who ruled the world. It was the Greeks who ruled the world. But after the death of Alexander and the division of his kingdom, there was an immediate 
um, weakening of the Greek power. And it took many decades. It took some centuries, but they got there. So remember, Alexander dies in 323. We're here now at 164 B.C., and so here we are, 323, 223, um, 123. So we're, what, 100 and, 130 years later after the death of Alexander. And now the Jews are reaching out to the Romans, asking if the Romans will help them fight the Seleucids or the Greeks. Judas, never realizing what that would trigger, that Rome would soon become, in, in the scope of history, Rome would soon become their oppressors. Uh, he was trying to get Rome to help them throw off the oppression of the Seleucid dynasty. And then in 161, Judas dies, and he's succeeded by his brother Jonathan. And then in 153, finally under Jonathan's leadership, the Jews make peace with the Seleucid king Alexander Bayless. And then after Jonathan, his brother Simon ruled over a semi-independent Jewish nation. And so in 140 BC, what's called the Hasmonean dynasty begins in Israel. The Hasmonean dynasty lasted about 80 years from 140 to 63 BC. And Hasmonean was actually, this was named after the family of Metathias. Remember Judas and Metathias? Maccabee wasn't their last name. That was a, that was a nickname. They were called the Hammers. Uh, but they were from the Hasmonean family. And so the Hasmonean dynasty began to rule in Israel for about 80 years. And they uh, were good leaders. They were skilled in Leading, they were skilled in military affairs. They worked really hard to de Hellenize the Jews. So the Hasmoneans did not like Hellenized Jews. Do you know what a Hellenized Jew is? A Hellenized Jew was a Jew who lived like a Greek. And so their culture, their practices were more Greek than they were Jewish. And so the Hasmonean dynasty worked really hard to try to bring the Jewishness back to, to the Jews and to Jerusalem and to Israel. And then finally, in about 116 B.C., the Seleucid Empire collapses completely. And the nation of Israel enjoyed full independence until about 63 or until 63 B.C. So for a good 53 years, they were completely independent. But even before that, they, once uh, Antiochus Epiphanes died and they made peace, there was relative independence. Uh, they were able to practice their religion. They were able to try to get rid of the Greek influence but for about 53 years, from 116 B.C., when the Seleucid Empire collapses, the Jews are fully independent. So that's what's happening with the Jews. Let's look at a few other things that are happening. Uh, any thoughts or any questions about that? Okay. So remember, while all of this, so the, the, a lot of the history that you're reading uh, or that you, you might read if you read, you know, that big book of history that I've got, a lot of it is about what's happening in the middle, what we would call the Middle East. Do you know why it's called the Middle East by chance? It wasn't called the Middle East back then. Why? Do you know why it's called the Middle East? Dave? Huh? Huh? Not the Far East. It, yeah, well, why is the Far East called the Far East, and the Middle East is called the Middle East, and the Near East is called the Near East? Because Jerusalem is the center of the world. No, actually... Come on! <laughs> actually, um, uh, uh, England, uh, Greenwich, uh, is the center of the world. Uh, but that is why, that defines everything on our maps. 
So Greenwich, England, where time is centered, from that point in England, what we call the Middle East is the Middle East because it's, it's the middle between Greenwich and the Far East. So you have the Near East, Middle East, and Far East. It has nothing to do with ancient history. It has much more to do with modern history and the rise of the British Empire. So at this time, we call it the Middle East, but that's not what they called it. <clears throat> and so while a much, there's much going on, so remember it's taking decades, it's taking um, really, uh, we're talking a couple of centuries um, or more, almost three centuries before the power of Greece kind of disintegrates and Rome now becomes the power. So that process is taking place. Greek influence is declining militarily, and Rome is growing in its power. And so all over what we call the Middle East, in Asia, Turkey, Syria, there are kingdoms, and there are peoples, and they're fighting with one another. And these Greek dynasties that came out of Alexander's empire, they're fighting one another for control of land and territory. And all the while, the Romans are over there in Italy, and they are quietly growing and becoming more and more powerful. So we've already looked at the overthrow of Carthage. Carthage was the most powerful and rich merchant city on the Mediterranean. And who controls it now? Well, the Romans control it now. Um, and so... Um, in 73 to 71 B.C., there was something happened. Um, there's famous movies made about this. Uh, a slave by the name of Spartacus. Anybody ever heard of Spartacus before? So Spartacus was a Roman gladiator. He was a slave. But his, they used him as a gladiator to provide entertainment for the people. And Spartacus, this Roman gladiator... Um, led a slave uprising that was so successful it struck fear in the hearts of the Roman Senate. And so at the height of this rebellion that only lasted about three years, Spartacus had about 70, 000, an army of about 70,000 men. Now Spartacus spent um, almost two years training his army because many of them were just slaves. I mean, slaves from the country, slaves from urban areas and the slaves from the country were much more better naturally equipped to fight than these slaves that came from the urban areas of Rome and these big cities but Spartacus is training them he was a very skilled uh, fighter he was a very skilled military tactician and so he leads this uprising of slaves now Guess how the Roman economy operated? What was it dependent upon for its success? Slaves. And so the thought that the slaves would, would uprise and they wouldn't have slaves anymore, Rome saw the prospect of their economy collapsing if these slaves were successful. And so there was a man, and, and we should mark this man's name. His name is Marcus Licinius Crassus. He just happened to be the wealthiest man in Rome. And Crassus volunteered to lead eight Roman legions to put down this slave revolt, this slave uprising. And in 71 BC, after the slaves were really much more successful than the Romans ever dreamed they could be, and this is why their fear was growing, because they actually saw the possibility that this slave army might actually be successful, and their, their fear was, because the Roman Empire had millions of slaves, that if word got out, this would begin to happen all over the place, and this guy Spartacus could actually lead a revolt that could actually threaten Rome. And since Marcus Licinius Crassus was the wealthiest man in Rome, guess why he was motivated to put down this thing? His wealth largely depended upon slave labor. 
you know, whatever. I mean, their economies are very complex. So slave labor has direct and indirect uh, results on an economy, and it certainly did in Rome's economy. That was their labor force. In long story short, Spartacus makes his last stand in southern Italy, and his slave army was finally defeated. And after the defeat of Spartacus and his army in 71 BC, they never, they never found the body of Spartacus. It's assumed he died in that battle, but they never recovered his body. Um, but there was also never another slave uprising. So uh, once this was put down, it was put down in such a manner that the slaves didn't try to revolt anymore. But Crassus, Marcus Licinius Crassus, was a hero. He was the hero who saved Rome from the rebellion of slaves. Marcus Licinius Crassus would go on to become a council of Rome. Now, do you know what a council a council is a title. It's, it's a title. It's equivalent to our title, president. So Crassus, Marcus Licinius Crassus, would go on to become a president of Rome. How many presidents or how many councils was, was uh, ruled Rome? Does anyone know? There was always two. Why is that? So if you go back to the history of Rome, this, huh? You mean at a time? Yes. No, at a time. So if you go back to the history of Rome, when Rome was founded, remember when Romulus and Remus were raised by a wolf, a she-wolf, and then um, Romulus killed his brother Remus uh, so he could have ultimate power. Now, we don't know whether they were really raised by she-wolves, but that's the legend. But we do know Romulus uh, had a hand in founding the city of Rome. And remember, on the Italian peninsula, there were two major groups of people. Uh, I bet you could guess the name of one major group of people that lived there, huh? No, they weren't Romans at that point. There wasn't a Rome. Before there was a Rome, there's a, we, there's a language named after them, the Latins. The Latins were one group, and there was another group. You want to know the name of them? The Latins lived in the southern part, and this other group lived farther up north. The Etruscans. So the Etruscans and the Latins were the two major people groups on the Italian peninsula. There were other groups, but these were the two that were most powerful. And the Latins and the Etruscans, they, they migrated to what's called the Latin Plain, on the western side of Italy there, where, the, where the, um, the Tiber River and everything flows into the, to the sea, and, and because that was an area where there was fertile land for farming and there was water, it was, just, it was a good place to establish a civilization. And so these Etruscans and Latins kind of jockeyed back and forth, uh, trying to see which one would, would take power. But eventually, they kind of melded together, but they became known as Latins. And, um, but the Latins borrowed much from the Etruscans. And so what we, what we know is Rome and the Romans really grew out of and evolved out of this Etruscan and Latin civilization. Well, they established the city of Rome. And I can't remember his name right now because we're going way back, centuries back in history now, to the founding of Rome. But there was a king who ruled Rome. And this king who ruled Rome, Rome was by this time a very powerful city uh, in that region. It was the city. And this king ruled this city that was the major city on the Italian peninsula. But he was an absolute tyrant. And the people hated him because he was so cruel and he, he was an absolute monarch. Now, as we go through history, the term absolute monarch is something we're going to hear quite frequently in history. We're going to hear it especially when we get into modern history. In fact, the reason we are a republic in America is because the people that we came from in England 
the nation we were birthed from, rejected the idea of an absolute monarch. And, and they rejected it violently. And so the idea of an absolute monarch was rejected in England, but you know why it was rejected in England? Because it was ultimately rejected. We can go back through history. The Greeks rejected it. The Romans rejected it. And, and this started in the city of Rome where this king was. And so when this king... When they got rid of this king, the Romans said, we will never be ruled by one king again. And so they set up a government and they said, we will have two kings so that two men will have to counsel together and we won't have one man doing his will. And they thought two, two heads would be better than one. And so Rome, because of their bad experience with tyranny, decided that they would never be ruled by a single king again. And so as Rome grew from a powerful city to um, a republic, so this is when they established two councils and they made their government a republic where people could vote and they had representatives and they had two councils or two presidents. And so those councils were the, were the top leaders and then you had a Senate that was to advise those two councils so that those councils, not one or not even two councils, were doing what they wanted to do. You had uh, a, a Senate that was elected by the people to govern the nation. Now, does anybody know the two groups of people that made up the Senate? Well, actually, for the first 300 years of the Republic, there was only one group of people that made up the Senate. They were called the patricians. But there was another group of people in Roman culture, huh? What? The patricians were the noble families, yes. The common people were what? They were the plebeians. So the plebeians, it took 300 years for the plebeians to gain a place in the Senate, 300 years. And so then finally, the Roman Senate was made up of two houses, the patricians and the plebeians. Does that sound familiar? Yeah. yeah. So the House of Lords in England and the House of what? Commons. Who are the lords? They're the noble people. They're the people with means, with money, connected to the royalty, who are the commoners? They're the commoners. What do we have in our, in our government? Now, it's not, really, it's, not really, it's not really designed that way, but, but really and truly, this is, you have the House of Representatives and you have the Senate, and it's very much like the House of Commons and the House of Lords or the Plebeians and the Patricians. Uh, it's not designed that way. We don't think of it that way. But what I'm saying is our form of government has evolved from all the way back to the founding of Rome and the government Rome set in place because they didn't want a tyrant ruling over them. And so Marcus Licinius Crassus, if we get back to modern ancient history here in 73 to 71 B.C., he becomes a, um, he's already a very powerful man because he's the most wealthy man, but now he's saved Rome from the rebellion of the slaves and, and he's gotten great political cachet out of this and he becomes a council. But we're, we're going to see how all this kind of uh, plays out. Probably not this week. We're probably going to do that next week. So then in 67 BC, there's a guy by the name of Pompey who defeats what's called, not the pirates of the Caribbean, but the pirates of the Mediterranean. Now, we think of pirates as existing, you know, in um, colonial times or in the 1600s or 1700s or the 1800s, but in 67 BC, this Roman general, Pompey, defeats the pirates of Cilicia or the pirates of the Mediterranean. So, if you know your geography and you can picture in your mind Turkey 
you know, turkey juts out. And just in that, in that um, you know, in that Israel, it, it, Israel is here along the coast, the, the eastern coast of the Mediterranean, then the, the Asian peninsula where Turkey is kind of goes over here. Well, just in that little, um, just in that little corner, in that northeast corner, or we would say the southeast corner of Turkey, in the bend of the, of the Mediterranean Sea there, there was a region called Cilicia. And these pirates who, who ruled the Mediterranean, so up until 67 B.C., these pirates ruled the Mediterranean. Now, this is where we have the luxury of looking back at history and seeing how certain events have a domino effect that you would never think it, it would. So think about, let's go back to Carthage. What was Carthage? It was the most powerful port on the Mediterranean Sea. Carthage was a colony of who? Do you remember? The Phoenicians. So Carthage was a Phoenician Colony. The Phoenicians were over there where Israel was. That's where that was their original land. The Canaanites, the Phoenicians, they were seafarers. They were sailors, uh, and they were very good at it, and had been very good uh, and powerful rulers of the sea for centuries. Well, with the defeat of Carthage by Rome, guess who's not ruling the sea anymore? Well, the Phoenicians aren't, and the Carth Carthaginians are now under Roman rule, and Rome is primarily a land power. Rome is not a naval power. So Rome has seen, so we've seen Greece. Now, we know the, Greece, the Greeks were, had a, uh, a great navy. They defeated the Persians at Salamis, which kind of was the beginning of the end of the Medo-Persian Empire. But now the Greeks are defeated, and all these empires, the Seleucid Empire, Ptolemy Empire, the Macedon, they're all kind of in decline as Rome is growing up and becoming more powerful. But Rome's a land power. They're not a naval power. So when Carthage is defeated and the Phoenicians are kind of overthrown and the Greeks aren't roaming the seas anymore because they're too busy fighting each other and now Rome is trying to encroach into Asia and take control and so they're fighting the fledgling Romans well, while this is happening, no one's minding the Mediterranean Sea. And so literally, pirates for, from about, I mean, the Romans send someone to try to do something about it, and they're like 140 B.C., but to no avail. And so for many, many decades, uh, probably over a hundred, over a century, these pirates are just ruling the Mediterranean. And so what happens is, it's kind of like the same thing we see happening in Mexico. You know, why, why are people hesitant to drive? If you're going to go on vacation and you want to go see the Panama Canal, guess what? You could drive all the way to Panama and see the Panama Canal. Why don't people just get in their minivans and drive to the Panama Canal? Because it's dangerous. Because you, you basically have pirates who are looking for people to what? To kidnap. And why do they want to kidnap them? Because they want to hold them for ransom. So this was a real problem in the 80s. I just read an article, it's becoming more of a problem now, where, where the drug cartels kind of protected tourists because they benefited from it, but you've got a bunch of people now who are kind of loose cannons, and they're not even controlled by the drug cartels, and so this is how they make money. They kidnap people who they think are of means. And so this is what was happening with the pirates of the Mediterranean. Wealthy Romans were sailing their ships and wealthy merchants were carrying their merchandise and they began to rob merchants, kidnap wealthy citizens and hold them for ransom to get large sums of money. And it reached a point finally that Pompeii, now remember this, is, this has been going on for for over a hundred years, almost a hundred years or more. In one year, Pompey did what no one else could do in, in many decades. <clears throat> and so Pompey, he assembles a navy, and in less than a year, in just a few months, 
he burns, captures, or destroys over 1,300 pirate vessels. And so what Pompey did, he divided the Mediterranean into 13 sections. And then he systematically sent his Roman warships and he literally drove like he drove these pirates into places then where his people on land could come and take care of them. And he systematically in a matter of months um, literally swept the Mediterranean clean of pirates. Now, it kind of came back because there was a need there. Those pirates also facilitated something that was very necessary for Rome and the slave trade. So those pirates worked to provide slaves for Rome. And so the market for slaves basically allowed the pirates to kind of come back. But they never... They never reached the point that they did after Pompey destroyed them. And so Pompey became a hero in Rome because he ended the scourge of the pirates. And so imagine all the merchants who were dependent upon their ships making it to the port that they need to get to to sell their merchandise. And now they're not worried about getting kidnapped. They're not worried about their stuff getting stolen and their ships getting sunk or captured. Uh, Pompey becomes a power in Rome. And we'll see that their Pompey will also become a council uh, in the government of Rome. Then uh, Pompey was uh, one of, so just as Crassus was a general, Pompey was a general. And so remember I said from the, uh, from the death of Antiochus Epiphanes and then his son made peace with the Maccabees and then eventually, you know, from, what did we say, from about 116 B.C. to 63 B.C., the Jewish nation was completely independent. So they were living free from Rome, from the Seleucids, from the Ptolemies, because all these guys are fighting each other and no one's really paying attention to, to the Jews in Jerusalem. And so for 50 plus years, they just have the luxury of being completely independent. But Rome was not going to be content with leaving any corner of the world unconquered. So the Seleucids, the Ptolemies, who controlled what we call the Middle East... <clears throat> You know, once the Seleucids, once they um, fell, the Ptolemies who controlled Egypt kind of took control of that area. There was another guy, and we don't hear much about him in history, and I actually don't have him here. <clears throat> uh, and, and I'm not going to remember his name. Gosh, what was his name? Um, uh, Mithridates, I think, was his name. Remember we talked about Hannibal? This guy, Mithridates, it's, it's, the, the Romans called it the Mithridatic Wars. So remember we had the Punic Wars between Carthage and Rome? Um, uh, in, in probably next week or the next week, I'm thinking next week, we'll talk about the Gaelic Wars. Um, that hasn't happened yet, but it's getting ready to happen. Uh, well, the, Mithratic, uh, the Mith, Mithridatic Wars, Mithridates, was this king of Pontus. So modern-day Turkey, he ruled an area there in modern-day and northern Turkey. And the people that he ruled were never really under anyone's control. So you know, they were kind of, they just kind of existed there. They were never controlled by Medo-Persia, and, and they just kind of been there. And it is said, the historians said that next to Hannibal, Mithridates was the most hated man by the Romans because Mithridates was like a thorn in the flesh of Rome there in, in Syria, in Turkey, in Asia. And so the Romans could not defeat this guy. This guy was a brilliant military tactician, and, and no one could defeat him. And um, they send their best generals. Finally, they finally overcome him. So Pompey goes, 
And so Pompey is taking land. So the Seleucids are gone. Pompey goes in where the vacuum is and he begins taking territory for Rome. And in 63 BC, he conquers Jerusalem and the Jews. So from 63 BC, now the Jews are no longer independent. They're living now under Roman rule, um, starting in 63 BC. So they kind of went from, you know, being this, well, we go back in history. And so remember, we go back to Daniel's vision or Nebuchadnezzar's vision of this beast, the head of gold, the, the, the arms and shoulders of silver, the chest and belly of bronze in the legs and feet of iron and clay. And it was these empires, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. And so right here at 63 BC, we are at the end of that belly and chest of bronze. We are at the end of the, the you know, the goat. Remember the goat uh, with one big horn, but then that horn was broken off and four grew into its place. Well, we're at the end of that. And so now this great and terrible beast that Daniel saw that caused him so much angst. This is Rome, and Rome is now on the precipice of, of rising to become. They're not an empire yet, but they're a very powerful republic. They're a very powerful um, force in the Mediterranean world. So Greece is, is declining. That empire has disintegrated almost completely. Rome is coming in. As this disintegration is taking place and they're taking territory and they finally overthrow this guy in the Mithridatic Wars, this guy they hated so much, he eventually died and the Romans, you know, took over the people, took over the whole region, as we know from history. But at this point, Rome is there <clears throat> and they have taken over Jerusalem and the Jews' brief independence is no more. All right, that's all the notes I have for you tonight. What questions might you have or what comments might you have? In 50 years of independence, was there a king over Israel and Judah? So uh, there was not a king. So uh, there, the high priest, so the Hesmonians, the, the family that high priest, that's who basically ruled. There was no king. And so in fulfillment of God's word, you know, the, the only king that could rightfully sit on that throne would be a descendant of David. Now, what we're going to see is the next king, there is going to be a king put in place there, but he's going to be put in place there by the Romans. He's going to be a vassal king, and he's not even going to really be a Jew. Herod was, was not really a Jew. It, Herod was married. His wife was a Hasmonean. And so Herod married into the Hasmonean family, but Rome is who put Herod on the throne. But the Hasmoneans, the high priest ruled. The high priest, the Sanhedrin, the elders, that's who ruled um, Israel. So were the Hasmoneans Pharisees and by the time of Jesus? So the Hasmoneans were kind of gone, but, but I would say that they, they would have been, yes, the Pharisees. They would have so been. <clears throat> Right. So the Hasmoneans were descendants of Levi. They were Levitical priests, but like Mattathias was not uh, an Aaronic priest. He was a descendant of Aaron. And so um, in, in some ways, and so this we'll, we'll talk about this, um, you know, the position of high priest, so... I think I talked about it last time where um, the guy Jason, um, let me go back. Basically, the whole, the priesthood became, um, it was a position of power. And so they kind of, Jason replaced Menelaus as high priest. Uh, 
But Jason was not, the last legal high priest was Onias III. And Onias III was replaced by his brother Jason. So he was of the lineage of Aaron, but he became corrupt and he sold himself out to the Seleucids. And when Antiochus Epiphanes comes into power, he um, basically replaces Jason with this guy by the name of Menelaus, an illegal high priest. And Menelaus has Onias murdered. And so this kind of starts this, this thing. So this is in 171 B.C. So from 171 B.C., from, from, from that time, there is no legal high priest. You've got these, I mean, this is part of the part of what the Seleucids did. This is part of what we're reading in Daniel. When we read about these things that happen, I think this is why, um, you know, my view of eschatology, I'm more or less a preterist. Um, and so I believe when Daniel is seeing these things in the future, he's not seeing things that are yet to happen. He's seeing these very things that are happening, that, that will happen. He's seeing the temple of God desecrated with the blood of pigs. He's seeing people murdered in the temple. He's seeing great statues set up and pagan worship taking place in the temple. He's seeing the high priest murdered. He's seeing how everything that God had set in place in uh, the promise of returning, he's seeing how this is all going to not end well. And so we're reading, this is the history that you read in those intertestamental books. And this is the history we're reading here. And so, um, now that's an interesting question that I don't have the answer to, but I need to look at. Um, was there ever a legal high priest that was restored to his rightful place? So like when you, because I know when Jesus is you know, on the scene, you've got this weird high priest situation stuff going on. I'm just curious of what those guys are, where they hail from. That's a, that's a great question. Uh, and, and it's very possible <clears throat> that um, let me see. I may have to look this up and get back with you. Um, it was Caiaphas a descendant of Levi? Was he uh, a priest in, uh, in the order of, of Aaron? That's a great question. I'm glad you asked. Let's see. Caiaphas was a was a Sadducee. He was not a what was not a Pharisee, but that was not uncommon. Most of the Sanhedrin were were of Sadducees. Um, they're not going to tell me here. Well, I'll find that question out for you. Oh, here we go. Here we go. Here we go. Maybe this will tell us. Uh, let's see. The officer of high priest became politicized in the Maccabean period. We know that happened. Uh, by the time of the New Testament, and th this is what we see during this time, it was treated more like a political. So the high priest was the ruler, not so much operating as a priest, more as a political ruler. Um, According to Josephus, Herod the Great appointed no less than six 
high priests. Caiaphas himself was appointed by the Roman procurator Valerius Gratus. Josephus describes Valerius Gratus as follows. This man deprived Ananias of the high priesthood and appointed Ishmael, the son of Phabi, to be high priest. He also deprived him in a little time and ordained Eleazar, the son, blah, 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 blah. Let's see. In other words, he was not a legal high priest is what it sounds like here. He was appointed more as a political officer than anything else. It seems like knowing that even if there is a legal guy but who had to basically get permission from the Romans mm-hmm. in order to even serve, it seems like that kind of can you know, help us see on a human level at least the insecurity when Jesus the Messiah comes and yeah. all of these guys are sitting here like yeah. we had to fight tooth and claw to just get permission to even be named these things. And yeah. we know that we're not even them, you know, in terms of like by lineage or by secession, you know. So think about it. That's a great point. So think about the difference between, <coughs> excuse me, <clears throat> the difference between Pharisees and Sadducees. The Sanhedrin was ruled by the Sadducees. And <clears throat> I always re- remember what my friend Gabriel Hamans would say. The Sadducees are Sadducee because they don't believe in a resurrection. <laughs> That's why they're sad, you see. Uh, the Sadducees don't believe in a resurrection. And so by the time Jesus comes along, the, the, the office of high priest has been completely politicized. It is a political appointment. And though Israel was was under the rule of Rome, the high priest is who ruled Israel. So there was no king. Herod was the king, but really and truly, the high priest was the guy who... And if the high priest is appointed by Herod, guess who's working together? Herod and the high priest. And we know that was true when we see Jesus being sent off to be crucified. And not only that, but Herod and Pontius Pilate. They had to work together because Pontius was the governor of, Pilate was the governor uh, under Caesar, and he had to keep control of things. And so Herod was called the king just so the people, he governed the, the, the everyday affairs of the people that Pilate wasn't going to get involved in. And I did a, it was in a sermon I did a while back, maybe two years or so ago. I don't remember what the occasion was. It might have been the triumphal entry. But what's interesting is, um, so the Sanhedrin, this council of 70, you know, this goes back from the days of Moses, the 70 elders. Those were the 70 elders who ruled Israel. And the high priest was the guy, he he was the the head of the Sanhedrin. And so when Jesus goes into the temple and turns everything over and starts disrupting everything, one of the reasons that they are so upset is because, and we don't think about this, we think the temple is just this empty place where people would go and worship and then they would leave. But remember, temples were banks. And so there was great wealth. The wealth of the nation of Israel, guess where they kept it? They kept it in the temple. They didn't keep it in Swiss bank accounts somewhere in, you know, in Switzerland. They kept it in the temple. And so there was this whole economic enterprise surrounding worship, buying and selling of animals, exchanging monies, um, exchange rates, all of this, interest loans, widows would put their money in the temple. That was the bank. And so these, the Sanhedrin and the high priest, these are the guys that ran all that. And when Jesus says, he's overturning tables and driving people out with whips, when he says, you've made my father's house a den of thieves, He's, I don't believe he's just talking about you're charging too much in your exchange rate. I I think Jesus understood that 
Now for centuries, this, this political system, this politicized high priest, um, this politicized Sanhedrin, all of these appointments by these pagan powers, this had become this incestual economic benefit for everyone concerned. It benefited the Romans, it benefited Herod, it benefited the, the Jews who were in power. And when Jesus comes, this is why they kept asking him, by whose authority do you do these things? It, it, Jesus was the wild card that they could not control and they could not figure out what his end game was because he obviously couldn't be bought. He couldn't be intimidated. If they could have bought him or intimidated him, I guarantee you they would have because that's what they did with everybody else. And so they did see Jesus as the absolute disruptor and overturner of everything they had been working for, for all of these decades since, you know, Alexander the Great and the Seleucids. They've been living under this system and they learned how to benefit and profit from it. And they learned how to get a measure of independence that they were content with because they had Wealth. Now, they despised the Romans. They wanted their independence. And I think they truly thought there would be a Messiah who would come and militarily overthrow them. But I think it's obvious to me that they thought this Messiah, when he came, would be like one of them. And, and they, they would use whatever means necessary to, to basically get the power back. And I think they had become so hardened, their conscience had become so seared. They didn't even, their self-righteousness was so sinful, they literally saw themselves as, you know, the purveyors of good and righteousness, but they were really just corrupt to the core. And that's exactly why Jesus said the things he did. You're like whitewashed tombs filled with dead men's bones. They were corrupt to the core and... and this developed over the decades leading up to the birth of Jesus and the coming of the true Messiah. And once he got there, he was going to rock their world. It's the same today, it's the same today. yeah. That is presented as the church, which is Yeah, I mean, we're, yes. <clears throat> yeah. 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 I mean, we and we really do see that all through history. You know, we see it. That's why we had a Reformation. Um, but it it hasn't ended. You're exactly right. And you know, the church is just God defines the church the same way. But think about. Think about the church that the culture embraces, the church as defined by the culture. I mean, we're dealing with the same sinfulness today that has always been there. And it will always be there until Jesus comes. But we're here to be salt and light and to push back that darkness, and, and we've got to do that. We have to do that. Any other thoughts? Yeah. I mean, <clears throat> Yeah. Where there's a fake high priest and there's a fake king. Yeah. And he comes. He's the true king and the true high priest. One, yes. Like, yes. Yes. Who's the king and he's yeah. the priest. And it's yeah. pretty incredible to think about that because <clears throat> no longer is there this idea of, you know, this is the this is the political power and this is supposed to be the religious power mm -hmm. here. It all culminates into Christ. Yeah. And you see that, I mean, Daniel predicted it in the rock cut out without hands. Isaiah prophesied it when he talked about the, the child upon whose shoulders shall be the government, of which there'll be uh, never, you know, the increase of his government and peace shall never end. And so during all of this period of history that Daniel lays out, these centuries of history that Daniel lays out in his prophecy, Daniel, Isaiah, all of them 
point. There, there's only one more king coming, and it is the final king. There's only one more kingdom. After these four, there's one more kingdom, and it is the final kingdom. And we can talk about Greenwich uh, time and, and the, the British Empire and all of that, but the reality is this is the kingdom. This is the kingdom. Do what? Huh? Greenwich. Did I say Greenwich? Greenwich. I'm sorry. Help me. Help me out. Greenwich. 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 There might be a Greenwich there too. Probably is. You know? Greenwich. All right. Well, upon that, let us pray.